Today, we'll listen to the first part of a two-part interview with our friend Jeff Orr. Jeff was just recently at the AI World Expo in Boston. And I spent a significant amount of time talking with Jeff and what the trends are coming out of the expo. What does he see? What did he hear at the expo that says, here's what's going to happen in 2019 and beyond? Now, Jeff and I spoke for almost two hours. So that's why I'm breaking this into a two-part series. I know a lot of you listen to this on your commute. So I don't think it takes most of you two hours to get to work. And if it does, it's a brand new year. So it's a great time to reevaluate why you might be driving two hours to get to work. And on that note, Happy New Year to everyone. It's 2019. That's amazing. 2019. I still remember where I was on, you know, New Year's Eve 2000. And 19 years just flew by. Just flew by. And think about that in the context of technology, AI. In 2000, or 19 years ago, the iPhone was still seven years away from existing. Seven years. And now, I think 70% of the world population has access to a cellular phone. That's pretty amazing. So in the span of, what, 12 years from the inception of the iPhone, 7 million people, not 7 million people, about 5 million people have access to a cellular phone. So technology changes, and it changes quickly. That's part of the reason why I started this podcast. Keep that open conversation about AI and how it's going to affect our business, our education, economics, jobs, pretty much every aspect of life. And I'm going to try really hard to get interesting people to interview in 2019. There may be some sessions where it's just lonely old me, but I will work hard to bring in people from all over the world to get different perspectives about where AI and technology are taking us and what it could mean for you. But enough about the upcoming episodes. Let's, let's talk about you. As I said in my previous podcast, we were going to introduce a new segment. So there's so much news about AI out there. I thought I'd focus on really just two articles because I found them really interesting. And one was from Tesla Roddy, it's called. Uh, that's the name of the website. It was written by uh, Astro Jane. It's a great name, Astro. And it basically talks about how researchers have developed artificial intelligence that can identify cancer cells. And that, that's pretty amazing. And, and I'm, I'll just cover it a little bit. It basically says that scientists from Osaka University in Japan have developed artificial intelligence that can identify different types of cancers based upon the microscopic images of the cells. And then it says that the AI was able to determine whether the cells were, the cancer cells were resistant to radiation and further learned the differences between human and animal cancers. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Now, they say that the, the main benefit here is going to be reducing the amount of delay it takes to identify cancerous cells, the types of cancerous cells people or animals might have, and it will also improve the accuracy of identification, which is honestly, it's really amazing. It's fascinating that this technology is out there. And as it gets enhanced and gets improved, 
and spreads out and more data is fed into these models, uh, it's going to have huge benefits for people who are suffering from cancer. Even if the benefit initially is small, the fact that we have this building block to help improve accuracy and speed up identification, uh, the technology is just going to get better and better and better. And anything that we can do or any way we can leverage technology to improve healthcare in general, and then later on democratize that ability to, to benefit the world, is, in my opinion, probably the single best use of technology we can ever have. Now, the other article that I was interested in that I want to share with you was that Cigna, the healthcare provider, is now using AI to predict prescription opioid abuse. It's actually using machine learning and predictive analysis to help, or predictive analytics, to help identify uh, their customers who might, might be more bent on abusing a prescriptive drug like an opiate. And because, as you're, as you're all pretty well aware, there is a huge problem with opio- opioid abuse in our country. And we're trying to figure out ways to stem that abuse. And now, as I just said, Cigna is leaning on AI to help solve that problem, or at least mitigate it somehow. So what they do is they, they use their data models to identify patients, and, and then a behavioral case manager then reaches out to the people and then tries to help ensure that they don't get into an abusive state of the drug. Now, to me, that's fascinating. To be able to look at patterns of behavior of patients to help identify ones that may abuse the drug. And just think about that. That's just on opioids. Where can we use that against um, other prescriptive drugs? There are many people out there that abuse prescriptive drugs. My uh, biological father was one of them. And it didn't bode well for him. So if these tools were around back then, they may have helped him. I'm just really excited to see that we're leveraging this technology to help people. And medicine is, to me, is not only ripe for disruption for, with technology like AI, but it seems to be taking a strong foothold. Now, I know I said I would only talk about two articles, but you should also, when you get some time, Google um, a surgical machine called DaVinci. And this thing is absolutely amazing. It's going to help automate some of the surgical procedures. And I think it was in the UK when I read the article um, at University College Hospital, if, I, if I'm correct about it. But it was basically, this machine is going to be allowed, or this machine will enable doctors to remotely control operations, but it's the most sophisticated machine out there today. Again, this stuff is, you know, from a geek perspective, it is super cool, but it just shows you where technology is going and, and you have to start thinking about what does this do? How does this impact jobs for the future? I know, you know it's a remote controlled surgical machine, but what happens when we can start automating some of the surgeries? Where, or at least parts of the surgical procedures, which I think they do already now, where they'll allow it to uh, suture or close the operation for minor surgeries. But think about where this could go. Not to say that doctors would go away because 
honestly, you need that compassionate individual to, to talk with you and, and, and to have that personal dynamic. But machines will get more involved with the diagnostic process. One, I would think because it'll help remove some of the bias that we inherently bring to the table and hopefully we can program out of AI. Uh, but, and, and there's vast amount, the vast amounts of data or volumes of data that machines can comb through to help look at new opportunities, not opportunities is the bad word, but can look at different scenarios much quicker and with, with much more accuracy than we could ever do in terms of trying to keep up with research. So, you know, in the medicine field, it's going to be and, and will continue to be, in my opinion, disrupted, and, which is exciting. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Um, I had a podcast with uh, Dr. Samuel, and it, we talked about continuously monitoring people and how that could benefit them and encourage them to have a fuller life. Uh, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast. I think it was Democratizing Healthcare. So, this is a lot of exciting things on the front of healthcare. And I really just wanted to share that information with you as part of our first news segment. So we got segment number one for news in the books. And again, I'd appreciate comments, feedback. You can reach out to me at bob at societywire.net or at societywire on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Give me your comments about other news information you'd like to hear about. I would love to hear what the audience is thinking about when it comes to technology and AI and how it might change your world. So please don't be shy. Send me your comments, questions, concerns, and I will try to address each and every one of them the best I can. But enough of me rambling already. Let's get into part one of my interview with Jeff Orr. So I want to introduce to the show emerging tech writer, consultant, and strategic advisor, Jeff Orr. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. You just got back from AI World too, right? You were the content director. Is that, is that correct? Yes. So a good, a good part of 2018 was spent in conceiving how business organizations and nonprofits should be looking at emerging technologies like machine learning or image recognition as a core part of their business. And AI World is a good example of an event that's organized around that thought, which is looking at ways to optimize workflow, gain productivity from employees, and to automate uh, areas where maybe they're not being done as efficiently as they can today. But uh, what I think sets that event apart from, from some of the others out there is rather than looking at maybe some of the development tools and layers that's focused on the implementation of these applications. And so this, the, this was the third year for AI World and had about 200 speakers talking about their experiences. So very much a, a peer-sharing kind of environment between business leaders and technology leaders within different industry verticals. And I... It sounds pretty sad. I've read a couple articles from the, the different speakers. What were your big takeaways from AI world? There, there's still a lot of misconceptions. I definitely think we're beyond what I jokingly call the learning to spell AI. 
uh, within business, there was definitely that that fear component or not understanding why it should matter. And now we've seen a lot of traction with uh, particular vertical industries, whether it be financial services, so insurance, banking, uh, lending. Yeah, fintech seems to be one that's become very solid. Like that's the, the flag has been planted there for AI. And There's a huge need to take all that data. I mean, that's a very data-rich industry. Right. And to be able to then say, now what do we do with this? Can we gain insights from it? And that's, that's certainly part of it. I would observe that a lot of the momentum that's occurring, though, within financial services isn't about the specific industry and applications or services that they're offering. It's the basic blocking and tackling components that every enterprise has to deal with. It's about customer service. It's about providing a great experience that when you're engaging with that brand or those services, it's about the sales and marketing side, finding your next customer. Well, and it's interesting you say that because I just recently saw a survey from one of the, one of the big five and it, it said that customers want more human interaction, not less. They want, they value customer experience over everything else, over price. And that they do. that customer experience is going to be the differentiator as we move further and further into the future. I think it's always been that way, obviously. But I think it's now with everybody trying to compete with throwing VR and AR and chatbots, companies are starting to wrestle with that idea of, well, what do I invest in? Should I be throwing my money into the AI ring or alternate reality or virtual reality? chatbots, if I'm seeing these surveys say more human experience or interaction, you know, am I taking the wrong path? I think it, to your point earlier, the struggle, the struggle is real, um, for, for companies to say, what is this? Like, what, what do I do with it? And, and how do I balance the demand for more people interaction, but yet automation, leveraging this for automation and not interfering with my guest experience or at least augmenting my guest experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you, something you said there is, resonates really well with me. And that is, you, you've somewhat described the, uh, the allure of technology and then looking for the business application, the business need or challenge. So you've described using these different technologies and not surprisingly, they have nice short acronyms, AR, AI, 5G, and so on that are not going to necessarily be something you can assign to a business challenge or a business need. And through events like AI World, one of the things we've realized is there's no lack of technology here. It's not about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a, a way that we could, with all this new found compute power and storage, uh, cloud processing and, and whatnot, that we could we could be able to, to take on these new tasks. That's happening. And it will continue to, to grow and continue to scale. What is changing is that organizations are coming back, whether they be thinking about these kind of broad umbrella terms like digital transformation or creating an innovative culture. They're, they're coming back and they're asking themselves, uh, they're looking internally, kind of like, what are the efficiencies that we already have? What are the resources and skills that we have? 
and where can we be doing this differently? So there is a need to be able to balance the technology and the tools with those kind of needs and demands of a growing and changing organization. But I think it comes back fundamentally every time to what what can we be doing differently? What can we how can we be satisfying these needs in a smarter way, being more responsible to the business, to the shareholders, to the employees? And so if I were to think of kind of even like an insurance firm, you know, these are organizations that have been around for decades. And many of them find themselves spending a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror, trying to make sure they're not going to get run over by a competitor. And that competitor is not going to be another large brand necessarily. It's going to be a very nimble, digital first competitor that doesn't have all of that baggage associated with people and process. And they're going to be thinking about how to deliver a solution more efficiently. A case in point with insurance, um, let's say it's auto, auto insurance. The application here, we, we all know as consumers of that type of insurance that if you know, thing, things kind of go awry if you ever get in an accident not even talking about cause here, but just the hassle of processing a claim, making that decision of should I file or how long is it going to take? Do I get what it's really worth or going to require to fix the vehicle and so forth? There is now an enablement within the marketplace. And I'm thinking very much of, of the most tech savvy markets to start with. Um, Those that have smartphones, for example, where some percentage of, of vehicle insurance claims could be settled through completing the following 10 uh, hurdles. And that could be things like photography, uh, location, time, uh, just information that is data that can be collected from that, from that scene. That's not going to be for more complex things like you know, a meteorite falling from the sky and crashing through your roof. But you could certainly be able to see things like minor fender benders and so forth for vehicles where a lot of that self-service capability could be done. You don't need to have auditors and adjusters and a, you know, a team of, of people to review those, those common things where there's, there are rules and there are best practices that these organizations and industries already follow. But self-service, I think, is, is, an er- is a good example where every organization can, can look to do better. And so if you're an organization that has call centers with you know, hundreds or thousands of, of people that are interacting with your audience, there's immediate ways to be able to make improvements. And the reality that your customers don't have specific hours. So having to learn that, you know, if you want to talk to somebody, you have to call on these days between these times and this time zone um, should, should be a way of the past. You can be able to create an application or when you contact that organization via phone, have it be able to, to know how to respond to your questions and uh, uh, be able to process natural language and voice and be able to provide you those kind of quick hit responses. We see that in some industries today, like I think uh, 
airlines, commercial airlines is probably a good example of it, where you can query about certain concepts, about your ticket, about flight delays, changing reservations, confirmations. Uh, all of those can be done through a variety of interfaces. It could be done through voice, it could be done through an app, it could be done through a browser, it could be done through a, a messaging function. There's a whole host of ways that that those types of, of functions could be done. Um, and the technologies are absolutely there to do it. But fundamentally, it's about identifying what that business need or, or capability is and then turning that into what's the best way we go about this. And if an AI technology comes up as part of that solution set, awesome. And if they want to go and, and pilot it, that's wonderful. But I think a lot of times the the concept is being pushed especially around intelligent automation is being pushed as pushed down from advisors or the board and so forth saying we've got to be in this space because it's hot this is how we get funding this is how we we show that we're we're on the cutting edge and it really forgets the the fundamentals of of how a business operates yeah now that's interesting you say that cuz even though i've been in the tech industry for 25 years I've always been one of, you know, let's not do tech for tech's sake. You know, yeah. if, if it fits, like you said, if, if the analysis comes out and yields, hey, this is ripe for TensorFlow, you know, <laughs> let's, let's automate this through document scanning. But, or, or it could be as simple as this is just a simple operational change. That's all we need to do. We've just been doing this the same way for so long. If we just had a person do X, that would change everything. And it's just, you it. kind of get in this rote of how we operate, which we, you and I kind of discussed offline, that people just, well, this is how I've done it for 10 years. Why, why do you do that? Well, that's how Joe taught me. Well, who taught Joe? Mary. It's like, oh, okay. So you'd use Excel for this every time, but you really don't need to. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's, that's, how, that's, how, that's how I was taught, and that's how I know how to do it. Okay. And what you've just described is, is going to be part of the adoption of artificial intelligence and learning systems and automation even if you even if you go through that pilot or testbed type process and you apply an algorithm across a data set and do a small sample size and you get some results out of it and you make your adjustments and you go run it across an operational data set in parallel with your operational processes and then decide, okay, this is all good and whatnot, and you move forward, and then you say, okay, that's cool, what's next? I mean, that's all, that iterative behavior is, is all good and fine, but at some point, there's a lot of unintentional side effects that come about from it. And I think this is kind of part of the newness of these, of these kind of algorithmic-based approaches, kind of the black box side effect as well from from machine learning and deep learning of kind of you, you put data in and something happens, you get some data out, you have to try to make some sense of that. And that's, um, like I said, it's all good and well, but at the same time, there needs to be someone who's kind of watching these behaviors within an organization or someone who advises them to step back and say, okay, now how do we, how do we take this and, and make sure that we're not creating some new vulnerability from a security aspect or how do we make sure that we're not introducing bias unintentionally 
into this. Um, bias is a huge uh, bias, responsibility. Even the, the ethical applications of, of AI technologies are increasingly important. And you know it's a big deal when you start to have governments talking about it. Yeah, I know. That, that usually the, the, that, that R word, regulation, usually comes along right not too far after that. And, and I think that with AI, you know, there's a lot of these kind of, uh, greenfield behaviors of, okay, we're going to be the first to go and, and try this, or we've, we've been doing machine learning in our organization for you know, a few years now, we've quietly deployed stuff, and we're now trying to figure out how we scale this across the company, or how do we create some industry best practices that an oversight agency or a regulator can be able to come in and, and is willing to work with. And so those, there's almost the need now to start stepping back and saying, what, how should we be thinking about these things where we've got a lot of different little proof points, but how do we, how do we actually start thinking about how this becomes something bigger than what an individual contributor or an executive or an industry even is, is prepared for. Yeah. This is uh, like, uh, out in front of it. I look at this AI and I use that broadly, very broadly as is like an alien baby. It's, it's still a baby right now, but it's one of those babies that grows very quickly. So in two years, it'll be 10, you know? <laughs> so it's, so you have to be aware of what, so while we're in the, we're still in the infant stage, it's going to keep growing so rapidly that I think this is where we talked about offline companies are a little bit nervous about what to do because they also see it as something that's going to grow, but how do you keep up with it? So do you dip in now? If you, and if you don't, would you be left behind? And, but if you do now, you, you do dip in now, would you apply it incorrectly? Would you, you know, are you, I guess the way I look is like, where, what part of our business do we go after first? And maybe it's just automation and, and that's probably the simplest way to dip into it. Because uh, companies have tons of data. We've been sitting on data for years. We just don't yes. know what to do with it. So it's the best application of it right now is, hey, at worst, just dip your toe into the predictive and prescriptive analytics part of it. That'll, that'll at is, least get you started. It will. And it's, it's a great way to experiment. You have the actual data. So you could put a pilot in parallel to an operational environment just to be able to see that the behaviors that you've observed from historical data are consistent with where you're headed. Right. And I think that's something everybody could do right now. Yeah. No matter how big, how small the organization is, you don't have to go and hire a data scientist or a you know, leading university professor. In fact, I'd probably argue, leave the university professors alone because they're educating that next generation of workforce. We don't want, don't want to take that talent away. Um, we want to be able to, to nurture it and, and find a way to celebrate as well of, of all, those, um, all those who have dedicated large amount of their uh, professional life to to creating some of these concepts and to really kind of pushing that edge. Uh, so it's there, there's a need to no there's 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 a need to to find ways to uh, think about how how the I'm, I'm not sure how I want to how I want to think about this. The it's tough. I think I probably <laughs> I want to stop there. It's it, it's a it's a tough thought. It I is. Think, you know, ha having that fear within an, an organization or within an industry, I, I, 
I kind of appreciate, I, I, I think we should think of benefit as, as challenging oneself and not necessarily look at it as, um, you know, be always be in panic mode or trying to figure out how to react. Did you see that when you were at, at AI world, when, where, where people were asking questions about what does this mean for me, especially HR? So what does this mean yeah. for me from a hiring perspective? And I brought up the data scientist thing because, well, I definitely think predictive analytics and pre prescriptive analytics are your, your easiest toe dip into the water of AI for a company and probably will give you the best bang for your buck out of the box, for sure. It'll help you learn more about your data. Um, and it'll help you get better at asking questions of your data, which I think is a whole other problem that we have, not being able to answer, ask the right questions of our data because we ask traditional stuff, like what were my costs from last year over year? But really, you need to dig deeper than that. Um, but there are any, those, go ahead. I was going to say there, there's those vertical examples that we can look at today and we can see where experimentation or early deployments are taking place. So we, we hit on FinTech a bit. Um, healthcare is, is somewhat similar, although I'd, I'd say that at this point it's, it's more in the forward looking research, pure research side of healthcare. Um, not so much yet about things like, um, working with uh, health records or necessarily the um, kind of the personalized medicine types of approaches. Those are, those, are, those are the types of topics that an event like AI World is looking at. What is the opportunity for personalized medicine? And some of the thoughts there are, rather than be reactive, is to truly understand the genetic makeup of an individual and that conceivably upon birth, you should be able to start understanding traits uh, about that individual, uh, given their genetic makeup, given given their, um, their their history from their parents and family members and so forth about propensities for certain diseases or illness. Uh, you could start shaping the ideal nutritional plan, and so it really kind of goes beyond just that personalization. Or maybe the simplification of, you know, somebody who, who, for their afflictions, needs to take seven different medications a day at different schedules and different ways and so forth. You know, can there be a, a single magic pill, for example? Really, that's not the way the industry is going. It's looking more at that, at just different ways to approach healthcare. You made a comment um, earlier I want to react to, and that was about uh, being able to kind of pick the right data as well. I think while there are a lot of organizations and industries that would consider themselves to be data rich, yet insight poor, there are there's certainly a greater number of organizations that don't necessarily see themselves having a lot of data. And so sometimes you've got to take that kind of counter approach and think about how can you get the benefits of a big data type environment, utilize automation, but get those benefits using a small data set. And so the, the example I like there is to, is to think about uh, some of these vacation rental types of, uh, of services that exist and just the amount of data they have coming into them. Uh, but rather than necessarily analyzing the data to be able to say, what should we do next? Uh, or, you know, how should we, you know, what, how should, what might we expand our market into a new city? It is to be thinking about creating entirely new services that can come from that from that data. So having a base of data about 
current behaviors and, and activities might suggest in that in that vacation rental type of of setting of of saying, well, how you know we see a, a some percentage of our audience and the, the top markets that we serve that that have pets they want to bring along. So being able to not only identify properties that they could rent that you could bring your pet along, but then I think more importantly, that service that you're really providing is also to be able to say, of all the places that say they're going to offer this capability for our customers uh, to bring along a pet, these are the few that actually have a veterinary service that's within five minutes you know, transit time or a pet store to be able to buy supplies and so forth. To me, that's that's the, the true power of that data is going to be able to pick that next that next behavior. And sometimes it's not about having lots of data. It's about having useful data and purposeful data. So uh, I was doing an interview with a, a uh, machine learning uh, professor that focuses on healthcare uh, at a university in Canada. And one of the things he said is, we don't need data to tell us that women get pregnant and men don't. And it, 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 yes, that's an obvious, an obvious thing, but it goes back to that point about you don't always have to have millions and millions of data points to be able to identify insights. You, you do need to be smart about picking the right, the right things to examine uh, so that you can make insightful decisions. Yeah, so it's really about deciding what questions to ask, what questions you want to ask, and then determining if you have the data, whether you have it internally or you can get it externally and not being so hung up on how big is my sample size for my data. Interesting. Switching subjects a little bit, what about uh, regulation as a disruptor to the industry? It is. And so, you know, I think that's a great segue, actually. Regulation is something that, that every organization needs to be thinking about. And while this doesn't directly relate to AI necessarily today, it's something that organizations, as they're building out their capability and they're looking at the types of challenges and opportunities they want to tackle, need to be thinking about. So regulation, uh, obviously, in 2018, one of the, one of the big things was the, the introduction or the initial rollout of GDPR across Europe. And I like to watch surveys and kind of see how people are reacting. And of course, it was pretty well known that a lot of organizations were simply not prepared, even though the timelines were put in place and so forth. There was a, there's a lot of ambiguity within the regulation to describe how to determine if you're compliant or not. And it was really intended to be a framework, uh, but one that has penalties down the line if, you, if you're not following it. And so looking at some of the Kind of top-level surveys about you know is your organization uh, pursuing GDPR and you know do you feel that you're you know fully compliant at this point? You know, it was something like one in three, maybe forty percent said, "Oh, we're not we're not even pursuing GDPR." Wow! And so you know, I, I get it. I mean, if you're if you're in, in a in a part of the world that is doesn't see themselves as as needing to follow European regulation. I, I get it. I can, I can see why someone would think that. But I think then that, that 
the part that I have to then reflect on and kind of echo back to the organizations that I interact with is don't look at this as did it material impact your bottom line this year? Did it change the behaviors of what you need to do when you're interacting with your customer base? Because even if you weren't, even if you did something as uh, kind of, I'll call it closed-minded, as locking down all of your online services and saying, well, if the domain coming and the IP address is coming in from Europe, we're just going to say, we don't want to do anything with you. To, um, to kind of then turning that around and saying, well, are, are you prepared for when this does happen in your jurisdiction and to your customers? And you, you have to do something like this. So case in point, um, there was a data legislation that, and privacy, data privacy legislation for consumers in the state of California that was passed in 2018. And while the actual implementations will not be uh, enforced until 2020 and after, it, there's this interim time period by which you know, every uh, organization needs to be thinking about what it means to them. And one of the fears is that as part of this behavior, if you're a citizen in California, you can actually query uh, a corporate entity and say, tell me what you know about me. And then you can pick and choose to say, you can use this, you can't have that. You can make those individual decisions. And that's part of the regulation that a company needs that's, to provide that mechanism? And if they don't, if they don't, and if they don't comply, they will be fine. And is that for so, anybody who does business with someone in California, or is it if you if you own and operate a business in California? You know, my understanding is that it, it's it's done with the citizens in mind. So it's coming, it's the data privacy and controls for the individual citizen in the state of California. Wow. So I, you know whether it's misguided, whether it's the wrong way to implement it. I think we could all have that debate. Point being, whether it's GDPR, whether it's uh, um, some other privacy and regulatory behavior, if you're not thinking about how to organize data, how you acquire the data, and building out that framework to explain it so that it becomes part of, of the process and the culture within the organization, uh, there can be some really serious ramifications soon. And so even if, you know, GDPR, as case in point, if you're not needing to be GDR, GDPR compliant and participating in that regulation today, um, what's the harm in preparing yourself for what will be happening in the, the markets and the audiences that you serve? Again, it's not about creating fear, uncertainty, or doubt for people. It's, it's to be that forward-thinking component. And I, I believe that once that framework is identified that an organization can then be able to start mapping data, where that data resides, how that data moves, how data is acquired, how data is purged. That's a huge burden for companies. That there's probably quite a few that don't even they aren't even aware of this. And I think I think there's very few that are aware. Of yeah, so that's going to be a. Those. I mean, if you have just consumer advocates, then just targeting companies say, look, you you need to have this, and you don't have this, so. We're going to have file a class action lawsuit on the behalf of the residents of California because your mobile app, you know, collects my data and I can't go to your website and find out what you're using my data for or what you know about me. That's huge. And then if other states start to adopting it or if you have a state by state adoption of something like that, oh right. my God, that would be chaos. Yeah, no chaos. consistency. Yeah. yeah. 
So those, you know, those, those are the types of things that no, literally no one's talking about. That's depressing. But, but <laughs> from a technology <laughs> a person, that's a depressing thought that no, I think that's opportunity. That, it that's, is, but it's also a exactly, knee jerk reaction from, 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 well, California doesn't surprise me, but I mean, it's, it's also, it's also a, a knee jerk reaction to wanting to potentially, I, I get there's the good intention is there. I get it. Privacy of the citizens. Um, but it's also going to impact organizations immensely. And there's got to be some level of uniformity in a country this big to be able to say, look, we can't have a state, a state by state adoption of this kind of rule because it would just be a never ending scramble of, oh, Minnesota has their new process. Oh, look at Colorado came out with it. Yeah, it's opportunity. It's opportunity for companies to come and say, hey, we'll help you <laughs> create an API and a website for yeah, you there's to al- do that. There's always that that class of of new entities that form you know, around around an opportunity like that. I think first it has it has to be there needs to be a discussion at a level where it's identifying what the objectives are. And and from that you can start to then kind of get different industries and participants to be able to add some intelligence to it by being able to do some classification. I think it create you have to create taxonomies. You have to understand all the things that can fit within. There's a need for, I won't go so far as saying standardization, because I think that it is perhaps jaded by my own experiences of, of working on industry standards and working with regulators to get rules changed and so forth to create balance or equity. But the market will continue to move forward, you know, as as those best efforts take place. So I think there has to be a lot of industry and pan industry collaboration to be able to to talk about what those are. We hear a little bit about it talking about ethics and responsibility now. I think security, privacy, governance, yeah, totally, governance, trust, all of those topics. Um, they just run across organizations, and and it goes goes back to something you had mentioned earlier about you know how do you how do you bring this capability into your organization? Do you go and hire data scientists? Do you create a a department that's that's looking purely at kind of just innovation opportunities? There's no single way to move forward. Each organization needs to definitely take a look at it. What what I would observe is is for an organization that's thinking about how to deal with all these topics, they first need to kind of understand what if they're ready for it. And one of the one of the first articles I wrote in 2018, and I kind of did the the headline as as a bit tongue in cheek or to be a bit counterintuitive, was I the, the actual declaration saying your your enterprise is not ready for AI. Yeah, I read that article, and it wasn't. It wasn't intended to tell people like, you know, doom and gloom or that, you know, you're not, you're not truly capable because at the end I'm offering suggestions as to how you can overcome that behavior. But it's about shifting the mindset from dealing in absolutes. And, and I I apologize to CFOs that that are listening because I I use the CFO as, as kind of a, a function with an organization where they're dealing with absolutes, you know, dealing with money. You're dealing with time, ROI, you know, so 
ROI. Yeah. yeah. How, at, at what point in time will we see, will we get our investment back on this? And will we start maybe generating uh, revenue from, uh, from this effort? There's nothing wrong with that approach, but it needs to be balanced with the realities of what an algorithmic model-based data-driven environment brings. Um, cybersecurity seems the same challenge right now. And that is you're dealing in ambiguities. You're not dealing with those absolutes. Yeah, and dealing- it, but in companies that are based on, you know, I've worked at many companies or consulted at many companies where it's projects don't get started unless there's an ROI. And, it, and you can map an ROI to automation, but you need to be thinking about what those measurements look like. And they aren't going to necessarily be uh, just just based on a time component or, or based on a, a revenue component or a spend component. Yeah, automation, I would say, is probably the low-hanging fruit of AI. I mean, that one is simple. I can remove two full-time people if I imply or, or, or if, I, if I add this new automation component that is purely, it, it's basically um, task-driven work. You know what I mean? If it's task oriented, I can automate that and I can see the cost savings, even though there's an additional outlay of capital expenditure for this software and equipment, whatever, there's a, there's a return, but I'm talking yeah. more on like the analytics, high volume, high volume, transaction oriented activities and functions within organizations are right for automation. Yeah, totally. There is no reason to keep doing things the way that they've been done. If, if that's where it is. And, and that's not an anti-people workforce sentiment. That is, uh, let's, let's, get, let's use people for, for their value. Let's put them on more complex tasks, more subjective activities and functions. So that was the first 35 minutes of my conversation with Jeff. And as you can see, we covered a wide range of topics. What was interesting to me is all the information Jeff provided, he, he's just coming off fresh in December from his AI Expo or AI World Expo. So in a way, we can say this is uh, fresh off the press. This is what people who are interested in AI are talking about and are interested about. And these are the trends that are currently playing out. So it gives us all a little bit of insight on where things might be headed. It seems like automation is king in terms of if you want to dip your toe into the AI space, automation is the way to go. Now, I know automation has been around for years, but only recently has machine learning played a role in the automation space. And, and the difference really is there's some level of quote-unquote intelligence behind the automation now with machine learning versus old, I'll call them old school versions of automation. And the main difference really is in the old school version, you'd have to write some kind of process or procedure or script that was very prescriptive. It would have to know what was going to happen. It would have steps to do things. And if there were anything that was, if there was anything that was outside the bounds of what it knew, it really couldn't do it. It would be an exception. Um, It couldn't adapt as it was going. Whereas in the new models, it's more model-driven, which means the models can really learn as they go. 
That's why the whole machine learning, the models adapt based on the data they receive. There's not, it's not necessarily a hard-coded script like in the old school days. And that's the real difference. So, and, and, and that's really an oversimplification of it. But if you want to make the argument that automation's been around forever, there really is a difference in automation through AI versus the old prescriptive models. Next week, we'll get into part two of our conversation with Jeff. Again, we cover a wide range of topics around AI and technology. We dip into jobs a bit. I hope you come back and join us for that episode. And please, send me your feedback. Uh, Let me know what you thought of the first part of this conversation and what you might want to hear in the future. You can reach me on Instagram and Twitter at SocietyWire. Or you can email me directly at bob at societywire.net. Love to hear from you. Uh, If you have any questions, I will read them out on one of the upcoming podcasts and do my best to answer it. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, Happy New Year. I hope everyone has a happy, healthy, safe, and prosperous New Year in whatever you're doing. And I'll see you next week.